0: This is Financial Standard, the definitive source of
1: news, thought leadership and analysis for Australian wealth management professionals. Financial Standard, take the lead.
0: I'm Cassandra Baldini with Financial Standard. Last week, I attended the AFA conference in the Gold Coast and had the opportunity to speak with its Chief Executive Officer, Phil Anderson. Phil spoke to me about the future of advice. It's my first conference, so I can't comment too much on the prior conferences, but there seems to be an air of positivity that has definitely been felt. Do you think this is different to prior
1: years? I mean, I think every conference is different in certain ways. We haven't had a conference since 2019, which is back to the very early days of, of the Fasia regime. And in fact, um, it was about the time that the government announced the first extension of the exam and the education deadlines. Um, and the year before, when we're up here in two thousand and eighteen was in the middle of the the Royal Commission. So you know the, the the time is is so very different now. But also the thing that is so substantially different, is we were under the hammer in 2018 and 19 because of the Royal Commission, because of the, the, the media response to the Royal Commission and the, um, and, and the demand for regulatory reform. So we're in this period of it hadn't happened yet, but we knew it was going to happen. And we've gone through most of that now, but what has fundamentally changed is the parliament, and I'm talking about both sides of politics have really come to realize that firstly, financial advice is really valuable. People need financial advice and, and the, uh, I think the COVID issues just highlighted that, the yeah, uncertainty, um, mental health, you know, the the incredible value that comes with financial advice in that you have confidence about the future. You have an understanding of where you're at Yeah. You, dealing with those um, emotional triggers. So advice gives so many benefits in terms of how happy people feel and you know, the, the way it impacts the, the behaviours that they demonstrate so that they are doing things to look after their own financial and, and, and you know, happiness or well-being. Mm-hmm. So the, the parliament now, I think, has a better appreciation of the value of advice. They've realised that what's happened recently has been quite detrimental for the number of advisors, and that's been quite detrimental for people having access to advice. And I really, I think, quite concerned now that um, there are many Australians who are at risk of no longer being able to access financial advice. So I think it's a fundamentally different environment. And, and what we're doing in this conference is the theme is Thrive, so it's about recognising that we've come through a tough period, but now it's about looking forward positively to the future, which uh, we we obviously hope that the regulatory trajectory will be heading in a positive direction. Hopefully we can start to get more people to come into the profession, but everyone or the majority of people in the profession will be doing well because the demand is so high.
0: That's a really great point. I mean, interesting that you... Um you touch on bringing people into the profession because yesterday you gave quite a positive speech. Um, you know, there was definitely a really good feeling and um, that there's going to be a, a better outcome going forward. I guess you, you said the, the educational standards are the hottest debate that we've seen for a while, or certainly you've seen for a while. When, when Stephen Jones, um, you know, gave his address to the conference um, earlier in the week, he felt that the educational pathway was balanced or he felt that the bar wasn't set too high or wasn't set too low. Now, you know, you've said the AFA have um, supported that there should be an educational pathway, but you've also been quite vocal on that. It kind of is, has been set too high, you know, with that path mark being a credit, so on and so forth. Now there are consultations under review currently and i think the minister said he's going to wait to see the outcome of that what do you think that could be changed to ensure that more new entrants do come into the advice sector and make sure it actually is balanced
1: yeah so there's a few things um when it comes to the exam we don't expect any change so the exam um the deadline is the end of this month and and the consequences of that are very stark for we we think around 500 advisors who will necessarily need to leave the profession. There is a pathway for them to come back, but they have to be off the register before the end of September so that they can sit the exam and come back later on. On education, it's quite different. The The minister, when he was the shadow minister in December of last year, uh, made an announcement uh, about a experienced advisor pathway for someone who had 10 years experience and there wasn't a lot of detail at that time it was it was you know no further study 10 years experience you're good to stay now the comments that he made earlier this week do suggest that he remains firmly committed to that but what we've seen in the uh, consultation paper released very recently is more detail around it so it's around um, 10 years experience as at the 1st of January 2019 um, over the course of the previous 15 years. Um, there's a good record requirement there. That's, that threshold date is quite different to what the former government consulted on in December of last year and, and led to submissions on the 1st of February where they were, where they said the 10 years would be assessed as at 1 January 2026. So we're talking about his proposal is nine years earlier than the former government's proposal and there'll be people who may have assumed that they would have got some recognition um, but they now potentially are, are not going to get that if it proceeds on the way that it's been proposed. Now, he he did say... He did make comments to suggest that he thought that what was proposed was appropriate and that what it was doing was adequately recognising experience. This has been a long debate. You know, we, we're not um, coming to this at the start of the process. We're coming to it, yeah, you know, maybe somewhere around the middle. And, and obviously, we had Brian Knight, the CEO of, of Kaplan Professional, talk to us yesterday about all the study that has been undertaken. Now, why I said this is the most hotly debated subject is most of the regulatory change, um, you know, we, we've largely been on one side of it. You know, we've, we've either disagreed with it or we've agreed with it. The education is different in that there's lots of people who are on each side, um, some who think the government has proposed to go too far and some that think that the government's got it quite right. And, and that's, that's not, uh, it's not a good situation to be in because we're, it, it's a trade-off here that we want to hold on to as many of the existing advisors as possible. Yes, as long as they are um, you know, quality advisors and they're doing the right thing, then yes, absolutely we want to hold on to them. But on the other hand, we've got people who are saying, we've done all this hard work to get where, where we need to go. and. Uh, and, and will this undermine this and will this impact the recognition of financial advice as a profession going forward? And that's not something that we can underestimate be, But and most particularly because of the, the challenging period over the last few years, the Royal Commission and everything and the criticism that the profession suffered in the media. So people are balancing these two things. And so the, I'm just talking about the experienced side of it. Um, and there, there are different elements to it as well. That's why we have proposed that, and and this is in consultation with a group of other professional associations, is, is yes, let's offer an experienced advisor pathway, but let's put a sunset date on it so that it doesn't keep it open for for years to come and that, you know, we will get to a point where there is a minimum tertiary education standard that's required, but it's not going to be the way FASEA had framed it, it's going, to be, it's going to be different. So, yeah, a 10-year um, sunset clause, we said let's, let's do it as at 1 January 2022, so 10 years experience as at that date, the start of this year, and then having 10 years until a sunset date of 1 January 2032. And we think that should cover a lot of people who, who are at the, this point considering whether they stay or they go. And yes, there there will be this good track record because that's consistent with what the government has said. We've said that they should still be required to do the ethics unit. Now, Brian Knight made the point yesterday that a lot of people have already done that ethics unit. So this won't necessarily disadvantage a lot of people to to do that. But we're saying that that's a, a minimum requirement because of our ability to say, you know, everyone has done the ethics unit. It's a it's an ethical profession beyond question.
0: So it seems like there's a lot of meeting in the middle um, here, and almost that the industry had to really go around full circle and go through that darker time to get to a you know a fairer result. Um, And do you feel that's something that will be positively um, accepted by the advice industry and those advisors who those 500 advisors who are you know looking at what they need to do now. Going forward,
1: so the, the 500 advisors are the ones who have failed the exam or the, have been unable to pass it to this point. I, I think that unless they can pass the exam, the education standard is, is largely irrelevant because it, they can't come back unless they pass the exam. If they come back, then they've got to deal with the education standard. It's more, and we don't have the exact numbers of how many people have completed the education standard as set by FASEA, um, Brian talked about this might impact around 3,000 advisors Uh, and it's it's difficult to to do that analysis because the data is not complete. But what I want to say is that we're also recommending that there needs to be better recognition of prior learning and experience for those people who don't want to rely upon the existing advisor pathway and want to do the education so we've said that there are a range of solutions there one is that rather than have it for existing advisors as a graduate diploma have it as a four subject graduate certificate with access to some credits or if it's going to stay as an eight subject graduate diploma then give people subjects credit based upon their use of experience and we've said over 15 years experience you should get three subjects credit so we're we're happy to support a, an experienced advisor pathway with a sunset date and greater recognition of prior learning and experience. So those who want to do the study, and Brian highlighted yesterday that a lot of people have chosen to do it and a lot of people have got value out of it. Not everyone, but, you know, there's a decent chunk who believe that it's actually been good for them to do that. So we want those options to be there. And the other important part of the education reforms is how we can change the requirements for new entrants to get more new entrants, to, to remove the rigidity of the, of the current model where you've got to select that you're going to do a financial planning degree at the start of the degree um, and you've got to do it through an institution that has been uh, recognised by FASIA. You know, We're saying that we need to have more flexibility in that so that people can come through a range of different Uh, university pathways with minimum standards to become eligible to do um, financial advice.
0: More flexibility seems to be quite the theme. Um, Michelle Levy's discussion and your your hosting her panel discussion was extremely interesting. There's obviously a number of um, changes that have been really well received by the industry. What do you think, I know you've said this before, but can you tell us what do you think the, the, the biggest highlight of the quality of advice review is and something that perhaps needs another look over?
1: Yeah, so in, in terms of the quick and easy uh, and great wins, you have to say getting rid of FDSs. The amount of work that goes into doing FDSs is, is, is huge. And, and Michelle just said, well, look, what's the point? They're already getting disclosure of fees through their, their periodic statements. Um, so that's an easy one. Uh, you know, it's, it's so easy to give that up, to stop doing that, that doesn't makes so much of a difference. That's really easy. There are other ones that are, are, are really big, but, uh, you know, there's potentially more work in them is, is, is getting rid of the best interest duty. Okay? I'll, That's talking about getting rid of the best interest duty in the legislation. It'd still be an obligation that applied through the Code of Ethics, but what it does do is it takes out of play the safe harbour. Now, Michelle's really emphasised the fact that the best interest duty is about the process you've followed rather than the outcome for the client. She's saying a good advice obligation is all about the outcome. If we assess it in terms of good advice, then we are consumer focused. We're making sure that the advice is delivered um, a better outcome for them. So there'll be changes that need to take place. There's a lot of re-education that will come with that one. So it's a really big one um, and it will take out some of the costs involved in preparing advice, but there'll be a, a change management exercise required. The other really big part of this is the outcome of removing the obligation to provide advice documents and she's been very strong about that and and has been for quite some time so um, th- there'll be adjustment that needs to take place there that advisors will need to think um, well clients will have the right to ask for advice documentation and, and we would expect that to be something that's agreed up front not at the end of the process and you have got to go back and and build it from scratch we think that's um, potentially a, a real big game changer as well because we're taking a lot of work out of the process and particularly given that all the feedback is that clients don't value SOAs. So I'd say they're probably the three big things There's a range of other things that are important, but they're the three big ones for us. Um, I think the other part of your question was, you know, where is their concern? Um, I, I, th- I would put it as relatively limited uh concern but important concerns and it's not about in my view it's not about the direction of what michelle's proposing it's about the extent of other controls to ensure that the client outcome is is a good outcome and two two critical areas one is the obligations that might apply to someone who provides personal advice but is not a relevant provider and our concerns are with respect to the type of advice that can be provided by such a person, and our view is it should be limited through some means to what is is less complex advice, and therefore the risk to the consumer of client detriment is much reduced. So if there's if it's relatively simple advice, then it's not unreasonable that it would be provided by someone who has less experience the question though is what is the experience and education requirement of the person who's providing advice who's not otherwise bound by the obligations that apply to financial advisors and at the moment that's going to be probably linked back to rg146 and specifically the corporations act requirement in section 912a And we're saying that that needs to be looked at, that there needs to be a higher education standard that applies to someone who's allowed to provide personal advice but is not bound by all the obligations that apply to financial advisors. So we think solutions can be worked out uh, in that space to make sure that they're not providing complex advice and they do have adequate skills and um, qualifications to provide the advice they are providing. The AFA has been very clear on on this, that whilst it it would be possible for advisors to push back on this concept of advice being provided by non-relevant providers, we're saying that we don't have enough advisors to meet the needs of Australians. And the advice profession needs to be focused on what's the best outcome for clients. And if they can get advice that meets their relatively simple needs through another mechanism, whether that's you know, people working, in, um, working for product providers or it's digital advice, then we have to support that. We have to support it, but we will continue to be arguing for sensible controls around the complexity and the risk of client detriment and also about higher education standards.
0: It does seem that um, some work needs to be done still and that's is a phrase that I've heard used um, a few times in a few different speeches. What do you think the advice sector, what more does the advice sector need to do? What is that work? What does it look like for them?
1: Well, I, I think in this particular issue, it's, it's a, about the consultation process that, you know, the, the discussions uh, are, are being had with the quality advice review, the submissions um, are due in today, um, and that will have to continue to, to get the right balance there to make sure that it is limited to relatively um, straightforward advice and that there are appropriate education standards around it. And I'm, I'm really comfortable with that process because Michelle Levy and, and her team from Treasury and the Quality Advice Review Project have been incredibly available and incredibly engaged. You know, they've spent time Work um, not working, but they've visited financial advice practices and they've many conversations and, and they've attended conferences. You now i've I've been to um uh I've been to two conferences where Michelle has actually attended. I've been to other ones where she has been um, zoomed in. I, I can't imagine there's been any other exercise where the person leading it has been so available and so willing to engage and listen to, to the advice profession. And I have no doubt that she's also out there consulting with a much broader range of stakeholders, um, regulators, um, consumer groups. You know, I, I've, I think that the approach that they've taken to get the right outcome on this is, is exactly what we would want and, and expect it to have taken place.
0: Absolutely. And we do look forward to the end result at the end of the year. I guess moving on now and, you know, there is a positivity here definitely this year at the conference, but it's also there's an underpinning of this might be the last. (laughs) I mean, have you had any conversations around that?
1: Well, I I think in talking about it being the last, that is a discussion around should the merger with the FBA take place, then could this um, be the last of its type, mm. um, and and the, I think that's something that a lot of people have reflected upon. Uh, the the AFA annual conference has been a highlight in in the year. Um, it's brought people together. It has always been uh, about engaging, about the community, about um, refreshing thinking, about talking about new ways of doing things, hearing from great speakers about inspiring people and so uh, it's a it's and particularly here at this venue at the racv pines on the gold coast which is um i think i said the other night i've uh, six of the 10 afa conferences that i've been at have been here at this venue and it's got that that vibe that that comes with um a a conference where people really enjoy themselves so you're giving that up is is something for for consideration um, should the members decide once something is put to them that they want to go ahead with the, the merger and that is entirely um, a choice of the members then it would undoubtedly be the outcome that what the old AFA conference would be rolled into or, or would have a an united AFA and FPA um, annual conference so that you know that would be a bigger, a bigger event, um, no doubt. You know, it would draw a lot more people um, and it would be done in a, in a bigger venue. So it'd be unlikely that we'd be coming back here for it. Um, should that happen, it's, uh, it's entirely up to members. Um, I think that, uh, you know, we would still be able to put on a really good event.
0: And how confident are you that you'll get that 75% um, member vote to um, approve the merger?
1: Yeah, I, I don't think we can take anything for granted. I think we've got to continue to be consulting with members and having been here at the conference was a really good opportunity to do that um, through we had David Sharp, the the um, chair of the FPA and Sam Pereira um, uh, doing a Q&A session on, on uh, Wednesday evening. Yesterday morning we had a members-only event for, for AFA members and They all had a good opportunity to put their question forward and and also um, moving around the the conference over the course of the last two days, there's been lots of opportunities for conversation. But that's not the end of this. We're going to do a uh, a series of um, state-based consultation meetings over the course of the next month so that we give everyone, not just those who came to the conference, but everyone a chance to have a conversation. How, how confident am I? Well, I, I don't want to take it for granted. I, I think that um, if, if we can put a good case forward, then we've got a reasonable prospect of, of getting the 75%. Um, but that will be up to um, the board of the AFA to demonstrate that they have listened and that um, they have taken on board all of the things that are important to the members of the AFA and that uh, they can address that in the proposals that get ultimately put forward for members to vote on.
0: Well, certainly if it does go ahead, um, you'll be leaving behind a very long legacy. What are you most excited about um, if, the, if the merger does happen about the new entity and your new position?
1: So um, I think it's important to say that it's not about leaving behind the legacy. So the AFA um, was formed in, in um, previous versions, because obviously it's evolved over the years and it's had different names, um, it was initially created in 1946. So we're now in our 76th year. But one of the things that, that Sam Pereira, as the president, has made really clear, and it's been part of all the discussions with the FPA, is we want to pr- preserve their heritage. You know, we want to respect the fact that we've got life members. Um, we've got people who have... Committed themselves to the organization for a long period of time um, and have been so instrumental in doing what it's achieved over that time. So we don't want to give up any of that. So we we need to make sure that in a merged entity, the things the AFA does well are incorporated into that. And one of the really strong suits is our communities, you know, whether it's the, the conference. Um, event and the community that we build through that, or it's our inspire um, females community, or our um, Gen X community that for for younger advisors, we need to hold on to those things so that um, in the new entity they are replicated, uh, and there's there's a need for the this merger consultation process to um, address that and build that into the structure going forward. So those. Those discussions are underway and the feedback that, um, the F- that the FPA leadership have got from attending the AFA conference is there's some really great stuff there that, um, that would be very much in everyone's best interest to find a way of holding on to.
0: That's extremely positive to hear and it seems like there are a lot of changes, um, but for the best perhaps that we're going to see this year. Is there anything else you'd like to share in terms of an outlook, or you know, just looking back on you know, you are celebrating um, being back at the conference and just looking back at the history of it? Is there anything that you'd like to share with us for a final comment?
1: If I was to to wrap up, I'd say that the um, the AFA has such a strong bond um, with its community, I and mean, the thing that we get from coming to this conference is is what impact it makes on them knowing that they have, they belong to an association that is focused on looking after their interests and advocating for them. And, and just the, the, the fact that it's great to have someone advocating for you, but you want to belong to something. You want to belong to something that you believe in. And that's really important to a lot of people that uh, the AFA gives themselves, gives them something that they can hold on to. And that it, it creates the framework around the community that they, they exist within, their friends, their colleagues, um, you know, where they go to, to find out how they can improve their business, how, how they can get answers to questions. So that sense of community is really critical. And I think the, the conference just has highlighted the importance of that for so many people who have attended this conference. Um, and we think that's so important to hold on to.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for your time, Phil Anderson.
1: Thank you, Cassie. No worries. Thanks for listening to this Financial Standard podcast. For more information, visit financialstandard.com.au. Please keep in mind that the information discussed in this podcast is general in nature and does not consider personal circumstances. Reliance should not be placed on any content without further independent financial research and advice.